You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new centerfire rifle ammunition terminal ascent. Now, the terminal ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The terminal ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet and it comes in a variety of cartridges including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06 and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete Houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up here! Get him! Get him! Yeah! Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe, from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week do you spend out there? As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> this episode of the Houndsman XP podcast, we roll out a new intro for you. Houndsman XP got a facelift, and we're really excited about that. We're going to try to live up to that introduction for you every week, and this week is no different. We are bringing you a coon hunter, coon hunter from North Carolina. He is a Marine Corps veteran, so we geek out a little bit about Marine Corps stuff, simplify to Chase Rickard. Chase is a family man, mid-30s from North Carolina, and he is a black and tan enthusiast and uh, has been for several years. And you're going to hear his amazing story about hound hunting and his involvement with black and tans. This podcast is going to take some unexpected turns and twists None of this was rehearsed. It was all natural conversation, but you're going to hear Chase's story about hounds saved him and turned his life around 
from what was more than likely going to be a very, very dark life. So pay attention to that part, folks. He's also going to uh, turn the tables on me, put me on the spot. He came into this interview with several questions for me about hounds and, and hunting and breeding and just a whole lot of good stuff that we're going to talk about on this podcast that I think you will enjoy. Before we get into the interview, a couple things that we're going to throw out there for you like every other week. Uh, we cover Freedom Hunters in the podcast, in the actual interview, but you can check out Freedom Hunters from our website at houndsmanxp.com. Go to that website, check on Freedom Hunters. You're going to find a link directly to their page and we can get you involved and you're going to hear more about that in the podcast, but check out Freedom Hunters and Patreon. This week is going to be our semi-annual drawing for our upper level sponsors. If you're in Patreon, if you're a sponsor at eight or $12 uh, by the end of June, then you are going to be included in our semi-annual drawing of a lot of good prizes, a big prize package coming at you. We've got some cool stuff. So watch for that on our social media pages. We're also going to have our normal monthly drawing for all Patreon level sponsors. So what is Patreon? We still get that question. Patreon is how you can support this podcast for $1 per show. As little as $1 per show, you can keep us on the air. You can hear stories about uh, about houndsmen just like chase rickard and find out how you can become more involved in uniting houndsmen across the globe and keeping our lifestyle alive and well and part of the north american model for wildlife conservation keep it in the management plan so check out patreon folks we are putting up houndsman xp pro tip videos uh, we're getting ready right now to roll out a new segment called tailgate talk there where we will talk to houndsmen in short clips and tell their story just like we would stand around the tailgate at a hunt or after a hunt and talk to each other about normal hound stuff it's going to be great it's going to be interesting i think you're really going to enjoy that we also have several exclusive articles on there uh to to talk about issues that we as houndsmen are facing so don't pass up the opportunity to support the podcast that supports your lifestyle for as little as one dollar per show a couple other things we want to throw out there and remind you of we rolled out our uh, uh, partnership with dogs are treat and paws are protected for the month of june if you're a Patreon sponsor the month of June, if you signed up in the month of June, if you are existing supporter by June 1st, you got a code for 20% off of Paws Are Protected. Let me tell you about this stuff. It is revolutionary. It is a preconditioner for your dog's feet. The most dedicated houndsmen I know are using this product, I'm included in this, and changing their uh, performance of their dogs just by keeping good feet under them i can't stress it enough build your pack from the ground up get those feet conditioned using paws are protected you're going to see a big difference in the performance of your dogs hey we want to get right into this podcast 
and let you hear from Chase Rickard. Thanks for your time. Enjoy this podcast. Houndsman XP fans, we take you to North Carolina with probably one of our first Patreon supporters and longtime listeners, Chase Rickard. And Chase is uh, a United States Marine Corps veteran. Simplify, Chase. Thank you. Simplify, Chris. Yeah. And uh, the reason we, we went after Chase and, and kind of we chased him down was uh, because of his, his unrelenting support of Houndsman XP, but he is a diehard black and tan hunter. And Chase, I told you yesterday that that, that might be uh, as black and being right a black up there on the level <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you man it's it's like it's like being a blue tick guy or a plot guy exactly <laughs> everybody thinks we're crazy but for some reason we just keep banging our head with these dogs that's right that's right well chase we're glad to have you on today and and uh talk to you and you know one of the things that really uh, started my interest of of uh, being involved with you is is because of the involvement that you've shown for Houndsman XP. Uh, you were the one that sent me several names of black and tan breeders, and if black and tan breeders are listening out there, don't be shy. I called everybody on that list and had a hard time getting anybody to uh, agree to come on. Everybody gets shy. They'll sit on a tailgate and talk to you for hours, or they'll talk to you on the phone and then when you say, hey, we just could have just recorded a podcast right there, then they're like, oh, okay. So we haven't given up yet, but uh, a lot of our older breeders and stuff just aren't familiar with podcasts, and they don't understand it. So, Yes, sir. Yeah. Chase, tell me, t- give, me some, give our listeners, give our listeners some background on you and uh, where you're from, how long you've been hunting. Uh, it, it, give us a lowdown on Chase Rickard. All right, well, uh, right now I'm 34 years old. I was born and raised right here in Madison, North Carolina. Um, I met a couple of people in high school. You know, they run hounds, and uh, that's pretty much how I got started. They invited me to go hunting, and I went with them, and sure enough, they sent the dogs out, hit a track, nailed a tree, went up there, you know, seen the eyeballs, and they knocked the coon out to the dogs, and Man, I tell you what, I was I was just hooked ever since then. You know, we got back to the truck, and I said, "Man, I got to get me a dog." Yeah. Well, uh, so you were you were in from that very first time, that very first experience. You were all in at that point. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I guess it, it's just like a fire that hits you. That, and I mean, it it ain't stopped since then. Um, you had a little. Br- had a, uh, my mom. My my mom says that that hounds kept me out of a lot of trouble. Yeah, all the kids. She was the mother of six. I was the oldest, and um, my passion for hounds. She pretty much knew where I was going to be on Friday and Saturday nights. You know, she never had to worry about about uh, getting that phone call from the jail unless the game warden was calling. And believe it or not, I was a little outlaw when I was a, when I was a teenager. I think we all go through that. But I can remember remember nights of uh, uh, riding around on a tailgate of a pickup truck. I'm probably going to give away a trade secret, 
and all my, my former brethren in the thin green line will disown me for this, but uh, I would ride around on the tailgate of the pickup truck. And the reason I rode back there is because I had the twenty two rifle on my lap. And if the game warden got behind us, then my job was to throw that rifle over in the ditch. <laughs> oh god that was back in the day i mean we've come a long way from then uh from there now but uh you know obviously 28 years in law enforcement i i kind of gave I, I gave up that lifestyle and uh realized that that you don't have to be an outlaw to enjoy these hounds in fact i think we have a duty not to be and to do everything we can to be uh supportive of the laws and ha- that that helps us develop a credible voice for wildlife management you can't be an outlaw and then go in and say hey we're concerned about wildlife it just doesn't work i agree fully i agree fully chris so tell us about but, uh, tell us about your marine corps experience i uh i joined the marine corps i went in directly right out of high school um my mom she wasn't she was extremely nervous. Uh, you know, she kept asking me, are you sure this is what you want to do? I said, yeah, you know, I hope I go to Iraq and all this stuff. And she said, well, be careful what you wish for. Well, uh, I went in in August of 04 and sure enough, February of 06, I got, of course I got sent overseas. Um, I was in Fallujah from February to September of 2006. I was a uh, 3521 motor team mechanic, and uh, I served four years, and I got out in 2008. And uh, I had a blast. Half the time, I don't really remember uh, just uh, doing crazy things that Marines do, I guess. Right, right. Well, Uh, I lost – I had some good friends that served in Fallujah, and uh, – I think it'll be one of the uh, battle streamers on the Marine Corps flag, you know, the 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 conduct and, and the accomplishments of the Battle of Fallujah will be one of those things that at Marine Corps boot camp graduations is going to be announced, uh, you know, within the next decade or so. It was just amazing what our beloved Corps did in the Battle of Fallujah. Oh, yeah, I agree fully. That I think that happened about... I'm going to say a year, year and a half before I went, got over there. Yeah. Because I guess after they wiped out and the whole city was abandoned pretty much. So, uh, and then I guess they started letting people back in and that's when I went in and come over there. Which it was, it was a, uh, definitely a time. I'll say that. I mean, right. Yeah. I a great imagine. experience, but, uh, you know, just, uh, so you served. So it was you, an experience. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Enough said on that. Let's. Uh, so you. So you took a short hiatus. Sounds a lot like my hound hunting career. Uh, you took a short hiatus, and then when you got back, you got discharged. What did you do first? You you uh, start looking for uh, uh, a girlfriend, or did you start looking for a black huh. and tan? Well, that's a, that's a story in itself, Chris. Uh, <laughs> Let's I hear call it. it. I guess. The, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, about my life after the Marine Corps. Um, I always tell people right when I first got in, 
first day in, you know, at the barracks, I'm in my alphas, AKA pickle outfit. Right. Um, there's a guy, uh, smoking in the smoking area and he looks at me and asks me if I drink. And, you know, of course I said, well, yeah, I drink. And they said, well, we're about to see how much. And sure enough, they, uh, they threw me the ringer on that one. But, uh, I guess I can't, you know, blame the Marine Corps for all that. That was my decisions to start doing that. And uh, when I got out, I went to the South Technical Community College for a diesel mechanic program. But, um, I graduated there, but I couldn't really adapt to the civilian life too great mm-hmm. uh, for one reason or another. So the drinking kind of, I brought the drinking back with me. Um, and even though that I wanted to hound hunt, when I got back, all my friends had gotten out, uh, that uh, I didn't have a clue where to look to find a dog or anything like that. So that flame that was on 10 kind of went to pilot mode. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I just went into, I guess, a downward spiral for several years. Um, and I had a job at Ruger. And I was about 28, 29 years old, and the drinking problem was it was horrible. Uh, I'll just say that. Yeah. Uh, I came into work one day, and a guy passed me, and he had a hat on. A uh, local hunting store we have in our county, and uh, in the middle of the hat, it had a picture of a walker dog. And I started talking to him about hound hunting, how I used to do it, and immediately, Chris, I tell you that that pilot flame went to a 10 again. Yeah. And I never drank a drop after that. That's um, that. I'm glad you shared that story. I'm glad you shared that story. And, That's, uh, you know, I, 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 it took a turn. We didn't talk about this before, but it took a turn that, that I wasn't expecting, you know, and, and I think that shows the, it, it adds a value to the lifestyle we lead as houndsmen. You know, if you're dyed in the wool, if you're a hardcore houndsman, it is a 365-day year commitment, and it's something yes, that sir, it is. The, the most successful houndsman I know, they, they may hunt other things. They may have a few other interests. They may play golf. They may, but the focal point of their life is waiting for it to get dark or finding that track to turn that hound loose on. And then they forget about everything else. And, you know, and I tell you, you know, I had a, I had a great passion for it when I first started, but when that happened in my life and I got back into it, you know, coon hunting in general, cause that's all I do with hounds. Uh, it, it really has a special place in my heart. Um, that'll that'll never die (laughs) it'll never go away with me and when i'm out in the woods all the stress all the worries everything just completely washes out of my head and and i'm focused on them dogs great that's a great that's a great message for our listeners you know and and we got to be careful you know i i do we have to be careful that that it doesn't wreck our family life. Um, oh yeah, I you know, and it. and it doesn't wreck. You know, for me, you know, my faith is. Uh, I try. It's a struggle. 
you know, it's a struggle for me because I find myself thinking more at times I'll find myself focusing more on hounds and the things around hound hunting than I do my family or my faith at times. And, um, uh, this is definitely a turn I didn't expect the podcast to take. I'll tell you that, but I, but I, I want to get it out there for, for me and because it sounds like you're, you do the same things, but you know, everybody has a thorn in the flesh that they've been given. And I think if we keep all things in perspective, then we can be successful. We can be more successful and have more enjoyment out of that. I agree fully with that. But on a lighter note. <laughs> yeah, let's move on. <laughs> um, see, right now I got three dogs. Uh, I, well, actually, when I got back into it, I uh, the guy that gave me my first black and tan, I went back to because I still didn't really know who to you know, be in contact with. And uh, he told me he would give me a hand, and he told me where to look. And... Uh, I found a breeder out here in North Carolina, Marshall, um, and he had actually had had some pups for sale uh, directly out of um, two-time Albert II. Oh, yeah, Hicks breeding. Yes, sir. Yep. And I, I got two females out of that litter, and my buddy had a line on a guy out in Missouri that he introduced me to that bloodline. And they had three, he had three males. So me and him made a 14 hour drive to get that dog out of Missouri. Right. I've made that drive twice. Uh, what was his name? Female in Missouri. Yeah. You remember his name? Oh yeah. Ted Feeler. I'm still in contact with him today. Ted's a, uh, man, he's a, he's a great guy. You know, I really think a whole lot of him, um, he uh, he was he, gone. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say he's one of the uh, the people that you referred me to, I believe. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I talked to him at it length. Sure is. I talked to him at length. I mean, we had a good conversation. That guy's that guy's done a lot of winning in competition. Oh yeah. with his black and tans. <laughs> uh, he's he's been on the historical. He's got several dogs that have been on the, the historical reproducers list. He's got hall of fame dogs. Um, pretty interesting guy to talk to. Uh, yeah, he, he, he definitely has some knowledge on the black dog. That's for sure. Yeah. So, so what, uh, what was it about those dogs you liked? Well, go ahead and go ahead and finish. And then I want to come back to your hounds and then talk about the traits that, that you saw in those dogs that you liked. Go ahead. Uh, well, like I said, my buddy got me introduced to, you know, Ted's line of dogs and, uh, they all go back to the Myers breeding, which was Ron Myers and he also lives in Missouri. So all the black and tans that, that I like kind of originated all right there in that area. The, uh, one Albert female, uh, she really didn't make the cut. So I sent her up to Maine, uh, to be a bear dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, to an outfit up there and I kept the other female and I got her rolling pretty good and my wife was getting ready to have our son so I kind of had to shorten the leash on them two so I sold the female and kept the male that I got from Ted and uh, 
you know, that, that whole line of breeding, uh, they're, you know, bigger size hounds, loud, and, you know, just great noses on them. What kind of uh, voice do they have? I, it, it seems like the last, when I first started hunting, um, it, black and tans were the traditional, you know, bugle mouth, ball mouth, track dogs, heavy chop, uh, they sounded houndy. They looked, they looked like hounds. And, and in the recent years, you know, some of the black and tans I've found, uh, they've lost some of that. So were Ted's dogs more that style of a hound? Oh yeah. Uh, they sure was. They, you know, they was pretty close up. Uh, I guess what I considered kind of like line breeding. Uh, Uh, and they went all back to the old school stuff. So, you know, there was more of the old houndy look to them. And, I mean, you, I mean, you're talking about loud. The, the dog I got from him was the loudest dog that I've heard around here. Um, he'd be in the woods, and he would strike in, and, you know, my buddies that might be with me would look at me and be like, was that your dog? I'm like, yep, that's him. Yeah. My God, he rattled some trees. Right. Yeah, but you know that's 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 what I that's what I like about them. So, do you competition hunt, or you just mainly you just uh, solely pleasure hunt? Ah, ninety five percent pleasure hunting, and I've dabbled in the competitions here and there just to get a feel of it, I guess. But right, mainly just pleasure hunting. You know, and that's the amazing thing is uh, we want to we want to talk to houndsmen like you. Uh, competition hunting has definitely had made its mark on our sport of coon hunting and even influenced the lifestyle of houndsmen. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, the houndsman that's just out there for the pleasure of following the hound is the person that I want to talk to the most and expose y- you to our listening audience, because not everybody is going to make the cover of a magazine. And I dreamed for years about winning a world championship and, and being oh, able to yes, cover, <laughs> cover the magazine. And, um, you know, it's just uh, after a while, uh, things things start happening and and, uh, and and you kind of change your priorities as you get older, or I did anyway. So that's why I'm so excited to to introduce our listeners to you, Chase, because you know I think think that you're going to chase those hounds, whether it's a competition hunt to go to this weekend or not. Oh yeah, for sure. You know I, I can't I can't go but so long, you know, without going hunting because I just start. I don't. Know, I guess I just get the itch or whatever, and I, I have to go. You know. It's, like right now, it's it's hot as crap outside. So uh, sometimes I won't go right after work, and I'll wake up about four four o'clock in the morning where it's a little cooler, and uh, you know I'll go out and do a little early morning hunt, and hopefully have a little success doing that. My favorite but, time of the day to hunt right now because we're we're going to hit lower nineties today. Humidity is going to be. Uh, in the, the, in the roof. yeah, it's going to be in the eighty to ninety percent range. Dew points are in the seventies, and you turn a hound loose right at dark, uh, and there's no dew on the grass yet, so they're prone to overheat. And I've I've either 
I'm pretty sure one of my hounds had a heat stroke or at least had a, a, a very severe case of heat exhaustion one night. Uh, never was the same after that night. So I try to hunt those early morning too because you got dew on the grass and uh, here anyway, you've got dew on the grass and, and the dogs are wet and they stay cooler. They perform better. Yes, sir. I agree fully with that. And you ain't really sweating your hind end off out there. And bugs have kind of calmed down by 4 o'clock in the morning also. <laughs> They're all full. <laughs> yeah. They, they just, yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. So uh, so tell us about hunting in North Carolina. What what kind of terrain you hunting in down there? And, um, you know, describe what a night of coon hunting for you would be in North Carolina. Well, Madison is a about uh i live about 10 miles from the virginia line uh and we're considering the foothill so um it's just kind of you know just hill hill country i would say it's not nothing you know mountain or nothing like that it's just some big size hills that you might have to climb uh, and it's hot it's sticky you know the humidity is just horrible down here but and most people they pretty much quit in the summertime, but I I don't really mind it. I'll hunt all year long. Um, I go into work, and when I get off, it's about nine o'clock. So by the time I do get home, it's it's dark already. So if I do want to turn loose right at dark, I'm I'm turning loose pretty much right at dark. And yeah, I always tell people if it wasn't for bad nights, I wouldn't have no nights at all. And I guess because I'm running black dogs, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I continue to take the beatings and continue to go out there night night after night. Right. What's your coon population like there in the foothills of uh, the Appalachian Mountains? I'd say probably average. You know, what's one a good to 10, night? Maybe a, a five. Yeah. What's your what's how many coons a night would you uh, would you normally tree? Well, I t- I'll tell you, Chris, when I, when I started hunting at 16, uh, man, we would tree coons every time we would turn loose. I don't, I, you know, but over the years, uh, timber's been cut down, housing development's been flew up like crazy around here, and I don't, you know, I don't really know what's happened, but it seems just like it's, it's getting harder and harder to uh, find those things around here. Hmm. Uh, so every now and then, you know, I'll have a really good night and every now and then I'll have a bad night. And I guess that's, that's normal, I guess. I, yeah. I don't really know. I think, I think once those little trash pandas figure out that there's food around those houses, then, uh, you know, they'll, they'll maybe in the tradition Stick around the trash can. Yeah. I'll <laughs> tell you what, around here, it's done the same thing. It sounds like you're describing, the the area of Indiana that I live in, most people think of Indiana as flat and cornfields and stuff like that. But we're actually considered the foothills of the Appalachians too. We border the Ohio River right here, right across the river from Kentucky, and our terrain is is very similar. Uh, it, some of the traditional places I used to hunt, I don't hunt anymore, and uh, you know because a house came in, and that's one of the biggest enemies to hunting it's easy to focus on on the anti-hunting crowd and all that but 
but one of the biggest hurdles that we as houndsmen face in the east is access to property and i see that oh it's it's become, tough. yeah more of a challenge every day and it's a common theme all across the eastern united states for sure for sure because you you have to you have to find land to hunt and then you have to get permission and you know hopefully it ain't some person you know that that will let you and not, you know, you know, run your dogs and they think, oh, you're going to mess everything up. And you know, you've talked about all that on other, other yep. podcasts. I know on the last podcast, uh, you was hunting up there in, uh, Idaho. Uh, I believe it was. Yep. Am I correct? Yeah. We just got back. Um, uh, you had talked, you had made a comment about people, to get permission to hunt on five acres of property that back up to this whole leg of land. Yeah. And, uh, man, that you talk about that hit home because that is, that has happened to me and I had permission to hunt the leg of land and somebody had permission to hunt that little bitty five acre piece that butted right up against it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a, a, a good time. I'll just say that I had a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with that that fella for sure. Yeah, it's it's a double. -edged, he knew better. That's a double-edged sword. You know, in some instances, I used to deal with this stuff all the time. Uh, but you would have somebody that had permission to hunt a thousand acres, and then uh, a person moves in, buys that small three to five acre parcel. And then he's upset because he listens to hounds at night and he's calling, he's calling and he's, he's, and then that usually turns into something bad. And then the other flip side of that is as houndsmen, we have to be diligent and responsible and not take advantage of the situation. It may be easy to get the permission to hunt that five acres on that block of land because people are tired of coons in their garden or, or eating the cat food off the porch or, you know, raccoons are damaging, you know, they're destructive little creatures and, and then they'll get permission to hunt that five acres and, and boom, before you know it, they're, they're wandering around on the thousand behind there. So there's a lot of responsibility there on both sides. That's for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it could lose, you know, like in that situation, if it, you know, would have turned, turned bad, I guess, you know, I could have had a chance of losing that spot to hunt. Yep. Uh, for sure. And that's, that's probably my number one spot that I have right now. <laughs> how do you, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Let's, um, how do you, how do you get permission to hunt places? Are you mostly private property where you're trying to, where you're, where you're hunting there, Chase? Uh, yes, sir. Just, you know, there, I don't really hunt no, uh, I guess public public land where everybody can go. Um, all all my spots is owned owned you know by individuals, and um, either I already know them or I know people that know them, and I kind of go through them and meet the landowners, and of course ask them permission to hunt. And nine times out of ten, if you're courteous and you know and nice and explain exactly what you're doing. Um, they really won't have a problem with it. 
Yeah. So tell us how that goes. I mean, you, you pull in a, you pull in a person's driveway to get permission. I think this is a good topic. I think it's something that needs to be talked about. You pull in the driveway to get permission. Tell us, tell us how you go about it. Um, well, you know, I pull in the driveway, I get out of the truck. Of course, I'll knock on the door when they come to me, you know, I'll, you, know, you look at them in the face and shake their hand and, uh, you know, manners, manners goes a real long ways. You know, yes, sir. No, sir. And like I said, just, you know, for me, be a gentleman and, uh, explain to them, you know, Hey, I'm a coon hunter. Uh, that's strictly all I do. Um, uh, you know, I know you've got a, let's say 200, 300 acres piece of property. Um, you know, I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind if I could come in here and, you know, do a little coon hunting. Um, and if they say, you know, that I can, I always ask them to get their name, the number, and tell them I will contact you every time and let you know that um, I'm coming into the hunt so that way they don't, you know, there's no misunderstanding if you come in there and they don't have a clue what's going on and because I've had that situation before and it didn't that outcome was horrible <laughs> yeah yeah and that I, was uh, a complete misunderstanding by the landowner and myself and and I should have uh, I should have known better to call the guy instead of doing what he told me to do right you know and that's that's something especially in today's day and age you know it's not hard to contact landowners with cell phones and different things uh with text messaging i've got several places that all i have to do is give them a text before nine o'clock at night i'm golden you know i may never even show up there that night to hunt but i may show up there so when i leave the house you know i've got to be a little bit strategic and i got to think about it and i got to think you know where am i hunting tonight okay i'm gonna go ahead and and send a text to Jones and I'm going to send it to Jackson's and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to let them know that I'm going to be out hunting tonight. And even if I'm not going to be directly on their place, if I'm close to their place, I'll go ahead and send them a message. Cause I don't know if my dogs are going to end up there that night. So oh yeah, one of the tactics that I like to use and to, to gain permission on places to hunt one is, is show up on, I like showing. I like going on a Sunday afternoon. It's kind of a lazy day still here in in Southern Indiana. A lot of people are home. Um, you know, late afternoon. You show up, and I'm I'm dressed, not not like I'm going to church, but respectable. You know, I, I'm not wearing a Budweiser T-shirt. And, uh, <laughs> and when I when I walk up to the door, I don't have a big chaw tobacco in my mouth, and you know, I'm there to do business and, and I want them, want them to know that they're, they are giving permission to a respectable person at that point. Think about what they're allowing you to do. They are giving you. Sole uh, permission. (laughs) Absolutely. They're giving you access to something that they worked and paid for. And, and maybe it took them a lifetime to get, and you're asking them for permission. Free. <laughs> yeah. Free permission just yeah. to roll in there and hunt. Yeah, you're not asking. The, they're going to let you go there unsupervised 
if if anybody else showed up at, the, at their house and said, "Hey, you care if I walk around your yard?" It's like, well, they're going to follow oh. you around. But we're st- we're pulling in there and saying, "Hey, can we be here at two o'clock in the morning and and turn dogs loose on your place?" Think about that. That's huge. And yet, it is. That is very big. Yeah, and we just act like if we don't take it seriously and show them that we're serious, there's a good chance you're not going to get permission. You know, and you might as well just face it. And you might have to look at why you're not getting permission. Um, and I'm not going to lie. One of the things I used to do is I would throw, I, I would uh, load my my daughter up and take her with me because she was just cute as a button. And the women, you know, uh, there's <laughs> nothing. Sucker on it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. That's all funny. That's all fair. It's all fair game. Oh yeah, it's all fair. Yeah, you got that right. Yep. Yep, and I send them pictures. But, uh, Some a lot. I have one landowner that um, gave us permission, and she, the the lady of the house, she just loved my daughter, and I would text her pictures of of Cora and I out coon hunting on their place, and she absolutely loved that. And so now I've got good good permission here. I've got trust of these landowners, and now I can go to the the next door neighbor and say, "Hey, I'm hunting over here on Jones, and you know my dog got over There's here." Your like, reference too. Yeah, yeah. So you got a reference plus you got plus you've got uh, something to talk about and say, "I do not want to come over here without permission. Do you mind if I hunt here too?" Sure, no problem. I mean, it just snowballs on itself. You got that right. I'll tell you something else I do. If I get permission to hunt, you know, on a piece of land, uh, like my father-in-law, he uh, he raises pigs. So every year in the wintertime, he'll, uh, you know, kill a couple of pigs and grind it up for sausage. And uh, I'll buy, you know, a couple pounds here and there, and I'll give it out to the people that uh, have given me permission to hunt instead of, you know, courtesy. Uh, for allowing me to do that absolutely you know, just to, in a way to you know tell them thank you and i appreciate it rolls of deer summer sausage go a long way i'm telling you that you know anytime you you show up it doesn't have to be big i'm talking about one two pound roll of summer sausage put them in a cooler start driving around to your landowners right at christmas time because they got christmas parties and everybody likes to have that cheese tray and crackers out there you walk up to the oh, yeah. and say, hey, Christmas is here or Thanksgiving is here, whatever that holiday is, you hand them, put that out on the table. I really appreciate you letting me use your land. Boom. That, that's exactly, yep. And they're, I mean, they're, they're grateful for you, you know, doing that for them. Absolutely. And it's just common courtesy. It's it common is. courtesy. Yep. It's like throwing a company Christmas party. You know, the boss, the boss doesn't want to spend money on you. But he wants to tell you thanks too. It's just good business, and he he invites people that have done business with his company, you know, and and it's all good. That's just it's we got to look at it as doing business. That is correct. I agree a hundred percent on that. Wow, that was a, that was a good topic, man. I'm glad that you brought was, that, that up. Was. Yeah. Well, Chase, I didn't mean to hijack that. You got anything else you want to tell us? Tell us about what kind of traits that you were looking for in those black and tans. I said we were going to get there, and then we started talking about permission and some other things. Tell me those tra- what traits you're looking for in a black and tan, or any hound for that matter. But I know that it's got to be black, so I'll say black and tan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all I've ever owned. So, <clears throat> uh, well, I, I, I like a 
like a big houndy, houndy dog. Uh, you know, 70, 75 pounds is about, you know, what I like to go after on a male dog. Uh-huh. Um, just that houndy look. Um, I like, you know, everybody's got their own opinions on the color of the black and tan, but I, I like a, a lot of dark on mine. Um, and where that generated from, I have no idea, because if you look back at the pictures from, like, the 1960s, um, it was really high-tan dogs mm-hmm. that, you know, a whole lot of tan on their feet and their face. And, like I said, I don't know where the whole dark come from, but I personally like it. Uh, I like a cold-nosed dog. Um, I prefer a chop on the tree, but, you know, I... As long as they do their job correctly, I don't really care. As long as their voice carries through the woods really good, that's fine with me. Yeah. But, uh, you know, about traits, I had actually wrote down a question uh, about those, about bad traits uh, that people may not like in the dogs, that are bred in the dogs. Uh, And I I guess... uh, what we call eel dogs, mean dogs, uh-huh. that would be bred into them as far as my knowledge goes. Um, do you know anything else, like, I guess, bad traits that would be that would be bred into dogs? I think, I um, think, um, I think certain traits are, that's what we breed for, you know, and, and when we start line breeding and concentrating that breeding, you know, we're going to pick up good traits, but we're also going to pick up the bad traits. And it's going to amplify those, and uh, uh, so you've got to you've got to look at that. If you've got a dog that overheats, is prone to overheating, doesn't handle the heat well, then uh, that may be a genetic issue, and he's going to pass that on to his pups. Especially if you line breed that uh, that dog, heat cycles, you know, quality of voice quality of the the way they use their nose all i think those are all hereditary and that's what about chewing on the tree you think it's is that hereditary or i think i think it can be but but i also think that um chewing on the tree a lot of times can be fixed by getting a dog's ears checked if a dog's got an ear infection then a lot of times they're gonna they're gonna be uh uh, looking for things to do, especially a diehard tree dog. You know, a dog that's not going to leave a tree, he's going to get hooked up and he's going to stay. If if they get hot, then they'll start chewing. Or if they've got an ear problem, if they've got an ear infection, they'll start chewing. So if I've got a dog that's that's chewing bad, the first thing I always do is I get their ears scoped, look in those ears and make sure they don't have an ear infection because – when a dog starts treeing and they they rock that head back, it puts that fluid and that pressure builds up on that eardrum and it irritates them. So they want to do, and especially when they start sounding off barking, you know, treeing, then that really makes them makes them start uh, gets them irritated. And uh, that's that's a big thing. And I've I've fixed a few more than a few dogs that were considered poor tree dogs or bad chewers simply by uh, getting those ears checked at an early stage and and treating that dog for an ear infection. 
Gotcha. Now, uh, going back to uh, <clears throat> what you said about, you know, the good traits, the bad traits of dogs, and just kind of getting a grasp on, I guess, you know, like a sire and a dam and stuff like that, and the dog's pedigree. So, you know, let's say if I'm going to, if I'm looking to buy a pup, and, are, are, um, you, are you are are you you interviewing me now? Uh, well, I guess we're going back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> Go I, for I, it. I, you know, I'm just curious uh, on some of these things. The Houndsman um, XP podcast hosted by Chase Rickard, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> 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 um, so let's say if I'm going to buy a pup and um, I've got a line, you know, on, on some dogs or whatever and uh, let's say you know, if I know what I'm looking for and what fits me, um, <clears throat> how far back should a person uh, research those dogs to you know to see if you know what the pup might have in them, uh, whether it be good or bad? Wow, that's a that's a great uh, how, que- that's a great question, and I'll, I'll I'll I would answer it this way. You know, Guy Ormiston, who writes for Coonhound Bloodlines and did for years, and I believe he still does, he still uh, is the editor of the BBCHA Blue Book and uh, Blue Tick Breeders and Coon Hunters Association Blue Book. Guy is probably the most knowledgeable person on this subject that I can think of. So I'm going to try to answer it the way that I have heard Guy Ormiston explain it and he really likes the four generation pedigree and was a big proponent of it and and promoted that four generation pedigree when when UKC started producing that and his analogy of that was and I'm I'm putting words in his mouth here a little bit so I'm going to try to do my best to sum this up the way he would say it but he really liked looking at those four generations and not only the four generations directly on the pedigree, but the litter mates to those dogs in the four generations. Um, yes, sir. And he, he put more stock on what the litters as a whole in those pedigrees were doing than he would in individual dogs, because you may get a fluke in there that, that is a, a reproducer, and he can produce some good pups, but or she, but the rest of her litter was average or below average, and that will come back up eventually somewhere. So, I I'm just going to defer to to what you know I've read Guy Warmiston saying because he is by far more more expert than I am. All right. You know, I have deciphered and looked at pedigrees and, um, you know, looked at the, I guess, the UKC numbers and found litter mates. And, I mean, I've went all the way back to sixth generation and contacted people about the dogs. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, just to try, I guess, just to get a, a grasp on, you know, what I could be getting, um, because even though, like I said, mom and daddy to the dog could be grade A dogs, but I want to search on back, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd ra- I would rather I would rather have a good dog out of a great litter 
than a great dog out of an average litter. You know, if 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 I'm a if I'm a breeder, you know, if I'm just a one and done looking for, you know, I'm not a breeder. I don't I don't have any aspirations of breeding that dog. I want the best dog out of that litter, no matter whether I don't care what the rest of them are do. But if I'm going to breed, if I make a decision that I'm going to stud a dog or I'm going to raise a litter of puppies, I better know what's behind there, or I'm doing more harm than I am good. And in that case, I would rather have a good dog out of a great litter than a great dog out of a good to average to below average litter. I agree 100% with that one. <laughs> Do you take notes? Did you? Oh, write, yeah, I've, I've got... You, you wrote questions I'll, down here? Oh, yeah, I've got a, a, a book <laughs> of, of questions that I had wrote down because sometimes, you know, I get brain farts. My brain just goes to <laughs> zero, and I can't – I stammer up, and I can't think of nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'll just <clears> – <throat> while you're looking for your next question, I'll just qualify. You know, I do not qualify myself as a breeder. I've, I've raised a few litters over the years out of some outstanding – what I considered outstanding uh, – dogs that that met the qualifications that i just described but as far as being considering myself a breeder i'm far from it you know i'm just i'm just a guy that loves to chase hounds around i know what qualities i like in a hound and um, i've had average success there's a few pups out there right now that are doing some winning that uh, and and are accomplished hounds in good hunters hands that that have made good hounds but um I just want to qualify that. I'm not an expert on breeding. Now, uh, another question I had was about scent, and that's something that I don't really know a whole whole lot about at all. Uh, you know, and I've I seen uh, one question pop up on Facebook a whole lot about a cold track. Uh, and I know the, the weather, you know, the humidity, and Depending on where you're at in the United States, it's all, I guess, could be different. But, you know, for this question, let's just say on just an average across the board, everything. Uh, mm-hmm. How much, and when a, when a coon, you know, lays a track, how much time has, you know, has to be, I guess, elapsed or whatever goes by in order for that track to actually be considered a cold track? Wow. That's, um, there's a lot of variables that go into that. Um, the thing that, that people miss is what is scent. Scent is actually a living microorganism. It's a cell. It's a, uh, it's the cells that are shed from the body. And when that cell is shed from the body, then it still has moisture in it. So um, that moisture and the way it interacts with the environment that it lands in is what determines the lifespan of that runnable track, how long that scent is actually going to stay there. Uh, You take a day like today, it's clear, it's sunny. Uh, A coon can walk uh, across this yard that I'm looking at right here and as it walks 
underneath a tree in the shade, and then it walks through the bright sunny grass, and it walks under the tree, another shade tree, and then it walks across the gravel driveway, and then it goes into the woods, okay? So that track is going to change in that 100 yards of how that scent is going to be preserved in the environment that it lands in. And it's not foot traffic. You know, the thing that a lot of people make a mistake of thinking is that the scent comes from the animal's feet. And that's that's called transfer. Uh, and the pads of the feet are on the ground all the time. So they're, the number of cells that can be shed right there are really pretty pretty minimal. But when the animal breathes, it exhales, uh, is it brushes up against something and hair follicles come off of it. They're constantly losing cells. The human body loses about 50,000 cells per, per minute um, and is, is being deposited in the environment we're in. And an animal is much the same. So in that 100 yards that I just described, when it goes under the shade tree, the sun isn't directly hitting it. So that cell's not going to dehydrate as much. There's more moisture under that tree than there is out in the same way with the gravel driveway. And then when they get to the woods, now you've got scent landing on vegetation, small weeds, stuff like that. You know, if it lands in short grass or it lands on gravel, uh, then, then there isn't much there to preserve it. It's harder to preserve that scent at that time. So it's so complicated. Um, and then, okay, so we've got that factor, you know, sunshine and shade and dehydration. Well, then you put humidity into the mix. Humidity can actually suspend scent up in the air, especially on a calm, still night. Um, <clears throat> if it's a calm, still night, animal runs through its environment that's how we have to look at it and it's shedding those skin cells and they're becoming airborne just like a jet stream off the back of a jet you know these cells are coming off of this animal and and flying up into the environment and if you've got high humidity then it can actually become suspended in the air up above and out of reach of where the dog's nose naturally wants to work a dog naturals is natural tracking position is head down at the shoulders about about 60 degrees with its nose, you know, 8 to 10 inches off the ground. Coyotes hunt like that, wolves hunt like that, and your dog wants to hunt like that. If you see a dog burying its nose down in and, and, and flipping over every leaf to try to find scent, it's because it's struggling finding it, not because he's hunting. He's looking. He's looking for that. He's not running that track. If you get a dog that lifts his head up and he's covering some country, then that happens. So when you get high humidity nights with no wind, that scent becomes suspended in a place that they aren't naturally looking for that and maybe even out of reach of their nose. You get a little bit of breeze, kicks it up, and, man, they can take off with it. Uh, a lot of times, a lot of times, go ahead. I said that put a whole a whole light on the subject because, you know, here in North Carolina, you know, it's, the humidity is ridiculous, so I think, you know, since you just explained all that, you know, that's probably what I'm dealing with every time that I go out, because it's humid pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, may, maybe that's the reason why it's it's a little tougher. Have you ever had a, uh, have you ever had a dog trying to locate a tree, and, and uh, it's just running around, and it can't figure out what tree to settle on? And Oh, yeah. 
I think that. I sure have. Yeah. High humidity night, that coon's sitting up in a tree. It ran the track into this location, this area, and now it's trying to locate that tree. And and it takes an exceptional dog to be able to accurately do that night in and night out. Um, my per, This is just my feelings on it. I think we, we there's a lot of talk about accuracy in dogs and false trees and slick treers and stuff like that. A lot of that behavior is created. Slick treeing is, is a behavior that, that is encouraged and created because as we turn that young dog loose in there, and now he barks up and he locates. Then what do, what do, what do we do when that happens? You get a young dog that you're hunting, and one of the first say the first fifteen or twenty trees he makes, as soon as he locates, what do you do? I'm doing cartwheels. Yeah, because I'm excited because you know that I'm thinking you know she she or he's coming along and you know doing what what they're supposed to be doing now. Do you rush in there to get to him? Uh, honestly, most of the time. Yeah, I used to most do that time, too. Sometimes I, I need to. I, I sit back and I, I say, "Let me just wait a minute." But then you know, I'm impatient. I've never had patience my whole life. <laughs> so well, let me put this out through the briar patch. Let me throw this philosophy out here, and people can throw it in the blender and pitch it out with the bathwater or whatever they want. But this is this is something that I started doing. You know, I used to be that guy that as soon as a dog barked up, then, man, I got to get in there. You know, I got to get in there to that young dog. I can't let him leave that. I can't let him, I, you know, he might leave, and I, I'm, I'm going to miss an opportunity to train here. Well, when you run in there and the dog's not sure, you sure as heck can't smell where the coon is. That's why we're hunting with the dog, right? So we Correct. run in there, and the dog's showing a tree, and we leash him up, and I don't care who you are, more than likely, you're going to give that dog some kind of encouragement, you know, either a slight pat or a good boy or whatever. You're excited, and you, you don't even have to say anything off of because dogs can key in on your nonverbal cues. They communicate nonverbally. Um, and when you come in there and you're excited and you're talking to your buddies, or you're, you know, they can feel that energy, and now you've just encouraged that dog to be on that tree. And you look, and you can't find a coon, and now you're discouraged. Whereas if you let that young dog go in there, let him beat and bang around a little bit until he's sure and he's committed and he's treeing. And then you walk in there and I, anymore, I walk in with suspicion, you know, really I do. I'm walking in. I'm like, okay, you say it's here, lease you up. I'm going to get back. I'm going to look, I'm going to shine this tree. And then if he's got a coon, that's when the party starts. And, I mean, it is a party at that tree. I'm down on my knees. Oh, I'm yeah. petting the dog. I'm doing all this <laughs> other stuff. Yep. So I think a lot of this slick tree and false tree and stuff, um, a lot of it, a lot more of it is created by us as trainers than what we really realize. Because that dog isn't, isn't hardwired coming out of the womb to be a liar. Correct. You know, like uh, I got a buddy of mine. He says, you know, 
99% of the time, you know, dogs don't come in into this world with problems. Humans uh, give the dogs their problems. Exactly. The majority of time. Exactly. You know, if, if you're running a bear dog and you're going down the road and, and all of a sudden the dog, the young pup strikes and you stop and you start petting that dog, it's not going to be long before you, as soon as he goes in that box and he sticks his head out of the side and that vehicle starts moving, he's going to be barking. I agree with that because he, he wants the, the acknowledgement of you, I guess. Yep. Yep. My blue tick female, she used to be a great rig dog, even on coons, she'd be a great rig dog. And, um, I caught her bluffing me and talking me into letting her go. Cause she figured out that when she, when she barked, then I would be like, okay, you know, there's a strike and turn her loose and let her, let her go hunting. Well, after you do that a few times and you realize that she's traveling four, six, 800 yards before you hear her again, she wasn't striking anything. She was, she was lying to you saying, I want down, I'm going hunting. <laughs> I'm, I want to get out of this box. Yeah, right, right. Yep, for sure. Yep. What other questions you got, Chase? Um, well, let's see. You know, there. I don't know if it's a myth or, uh, you know, if it's got any truth, holds any truth to it or not. Some people, they don't do it, and some people say that uh, that it helps the, the puppies out. But, you know, let's say you got a female, you know, in a – Got her hooked up to a, you know, with a dog, and now she's going to have some pups. Uh, some people say to hunt that dog while she's pregnant, because uh, when she strikes in and when she's sitting there jamming on the tree, that I guess it sends something through her into the pups. I guess, and, and I guess the puppy can feel feel their, you know, their mama's energy coming off in them, and it, it helps them out. Uh, I don't know if there's any truth to that or not. Uh, you have any knowledge on that? I don't have any knowledge, but just like everything else, I've got opinions. You know, I don't have a, I don't have any direct knowledge on it. I think it's overall, it's good to hunt a pregnant female just for um, the exercise and the the more physically fit a female is at whelping time the better success she's going to have and the ease it's going to be to uh, have her pups. So, so I definitely think it's good for exercise and I, I try to hunt them up until they're, you know, uh, two to three weeks before their due date. Um, because at that point they're starting to belly down and, and they're starting to develop uh, a bag and, and things like that for the pups to nurse. And, and when you're, you're hunting them after that, then you run the risk of, of irritating those nipples. And, and, um, so once, so if you, if you try to hunt them too long and the, the nipples are already irritated and it's, it's, um, then when those pups start sucking, then those females, just scratches, you know, just scratches and just irritated, you know, just raw. If you, if you, if you run a dog through high grass, um, even a, a dog that's bagged down, I mean, well, I mean, consider around here, if you run a dog in soybeans, you'll actually mm -hmm. rub, rub the hair off their face. You know, if they get in a good soybean race night after night, it almost looks like their, their face is going bald because it'll just strip the hair off. Well, 
tall grass, briars, whatever, will do the same thing to those nipples. And then when she whelps those pups and those pups start nursing, then she'll be agitated with them and she won't let them nurse because it's hurting her. So on that, that side, you know, I do try to hunt females up until about two to three weeks before whelping. Um, as far as, you know, I believe it. I believe that you hunt a female and she goes in there and gets treed. She's carrying those, carrying those little living bodies inside there. She's dumping some endorphins through her system. They have to go, they have to go into the pups, in my opinion. And um, it's like your wife and the new science on, you know, talking to your baby in your, in your pregnant wife's belly. You know, they recognize mm-hmm. your voice when they come out. Um, it's playing music. My wife, she whistles, she sings, she's a naturally happy person. And she even was when she was pregnant and it just, uh, I think, I think that makes a difference in people. So why not? You know, that's my theory is why not? Is it going to hurt anything? Nope. Not going to hurt anything. No, yeah. Might as well try. Yeah. That's the matrix. I run it. If it's not going to hurt anything. <clears throat> Why wouldn't you, you know, give it a shot. See what you think. Exactly. I agree a hundred percent. Uh, you know, like, uh, I got another one. Um, all the stud dogs and stuff, you know, they get, they get pretty much all the recognition for the most part. Uh, and the females kind of always sit on the back burner. Um, but would you say the, um, I guess the percentage because, um, you know, they always say the male, all the males throwing all these awesome pups. Um, <laughs> would the percentage be 50, like 50 50 um, on the genetic traits between the male and the female? Or you think one side, you know, gives more than the other? Man, I need to have you co host a, a podcast with a geneticist. Uh, you know, somebody that actually knows what they're talking about on this subject, Chase. <laughs> you know, because, I, I mean, you know, these <laughs> questions I, I, I've always, you know, just wanted to learn about because once I, you know, it's a, it's a subject that I really enjoy learning about because, you know, I Well, this is the exact type of stuff we want to talk about on our podcast. You know, just we want to talk about those things here. There are things that we see on social media there's things these are things that we talk about when we're sitting on the tailgate or we're we're at the local hunting club and we're we're drinking coffee or whatever these are the things that we talk about that dog food and and uh, which breed of dog to hunt but these are all great topics and um you know just speaking from it's i'm gonna get some blowback from this but it's it's scientifically impossible for the sire or the dam to contribute more than 50 percent um it's genetically impossible (laughs) from everything i've read from everything that i've read on which is limited i'm you know i don't have a any kind of a degree in in genetics or anything but from listening to genetics talk and reading articles by genetics then it is physically impossible for that to happen now the the thing is some of those genetics coming from the sire of the dam may be prepotent more 
and more potent and carries over. You know, I'm sure that your daughter has traits, maybe her physical traits, uh, you know, maybe she looks more like her mom than you, or maybe she has your mouth, or maybe, you know, she has your build, or maybe she, you know, I look at my three kids, and none of them are like a perfect 50-50 mix of my wife and I's genetics. My oldest daughter, you know, she, she, her attitude, her thought processes are a lot more like mine. My middle daughter is uh, more like my wife, they all got their looks from my wife, thank goodness. And then my son, my I wasn't quite so lucky. <laughs> and then, and then my son, you know, he's just a boy, you know, so I don't know what to think of him yet. He's 19 years old and, and I hope he didn't get his common sense from me because he doesn't have much right now. Yeah. My son, he, uh, he's, everybody said he's pretty much my identical twin. Yeah. They say the Uh same thing about Jake and, and stuff like that. But you know, it's, I think it's a question that a female, if she comes from a, a good strong line of dogs, then that's the key. We shouldn't be breeding male males and females. I want to breed a female. I'm stammering around here because I'm developing my thought. Um, there's a few, few things here. For one thing, um, people need to be more disciplined on what they breed. And I agree a hundred percent. And just because you have a female and so somebody else has a male and you decide you want to get, get together and have puppies and then get rich, sell them puppies, then that's the wrong reason. Um, go breed Labradoodles. You know, that's a great place for you to be because you can get four times as much money out of one pup. There's no expectation on performance, but we're talking about breeding performance animals that affect our life as hunters and other people's life as hunters. And if I'm going to make that cross, you take my jazz, take my jazz female, for instance, she was, she was, an early starting talented dog. People can find the journal, her journal on the UKC message board under the blue tick page. It's called the blue dog project. I documented nearly every hunt for the first year of her life. And you can see what her percentages were and how her development went in the whole nine yards. So you can go find that and read it. But looking behind her, she had a solid breeding program behind her. Um, nothing in that pedigree I felt was done by accident or happenstance. It was all planned. So same thing happened with big country, you know, big country was a dog that was the product of generations of disciplined, informed, solid breeding. You know, you look back in there and you've got, um, um, Slice Blue Rambo, Rambo 2. You got Richie McDonald's stuff in there. Richie McDonald is a disciplined breeder. Uh, you've got some of Troy Sheffield stuff from the Echo 2 line, disciplined breeder. You know, and you go back and it's got some Uchman stuff, a disciplined breeder. It wasn't just some happenstance. It So when you take two dogs some like. Some puppy meal. Yeah. 
When you take two dogs like that, and we bred big country to jazz because of the discipline breeding behind them and because of their exception, what we considered exceptional ability, and we made that cross, we had an expectation of what we would get on the other end. And, and, um, I think that's where you got to start. So to say that a male or a female, if you if you're breeding if you're breeding a, a sorry male that has no discipline breeding behind him, and you're breeding him to a prepotent female, and she's got a solid pedigree and solid breeding behind her, then you probably should expect the female to carry more weight, and vice versa. Gotcha. Does that, that, does that make sense? Oh yeah, yes sir, a whole lot. Well, Chase, what do you? Yeah. Go ahead. I'm just curious. I'm just curious about you know, is your is your family hunting with you? Are they? Are you? Do you take them hunting? Um, every every now and then they'll go. Uh, and of course, not during the, the work week. Uh, but Friday and Saturday, if I go, we'll go right at dark, and uh, my wife will get the truck. My son. He's two years old. Okay. Yeah, he loves dogs. He'll go out in the backyard yeah. to the kennel and beat and bang and holler and rub on the dogs. And But, uh, yeah, we'll go out and I'll turn the dogs loose and we'll have a good old time. Yeah. And he sees them take off and he's just laughing and running around because he's wild as a hornet right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How old's your daughter? Oh, no, I just have that one son. Um, okay. My wife is, you know, she's pregnant right now with a, another son that we're getting ready to have in September. Oh, okay. Good deal. I thought so I, for on. some reason I was thinking you had a had a little girl, but, um, yeah, good stuff, man. So I'm going to have my hands full. You are definitely going to have your hands full. And, uh, yeah, don't make your wife a coon hunting widow or your kids of coon hunting orphans, you know, um, oh no! I, yeah. I done told her once, once, once they get a, a good age where they can, you know, walk to the you know woods pretty good. Uh, they're coming with me. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're definitely going to tag along, and uh, you know, I'm, you know, I've got it, I got it passed down from friends, not family, because you know neither one of my parents is they're not hunters, of course, but. Uh, you know, I really, you come from a non-hunting. Past, you come from a non-hunting family. Yep. Uh, well, my uncle, he uh, he dabbled in some rabbit hunting, and you know, and he he he's actually a big turkey hunter. But uh, I never really did get into any of that, and I just strictly coon hunt. Um, so that's what pretty are, much all I do. So what is your what do your mom and dad say? What was their idea when you first started hunting? No, they had no idea what what I was doing. <laughs> like, uh, I'll give you a little, a little quick story. Yeah. And a buddy turned out uh, one night. I think I was probably 16, 17 years old. Uh, I just had got my first phone. Uh, and it was that one little dokey brick-looking phone. Uh, and it's about one o'clock in the morning and my dad calls me and asked me where in the heck I was at. Yeah. And I said, I'm coon hunting. It's one o'clock in the morning. You get your hind in home. And, uh, <laughs> said, all right, well, I'll be there in a minute. 
my buddy's like, man, I can't go home without this dog. My dad's going to kill me. <laughs> I said, don't worry. No, I ain't going to leave it. We'll get home when we get home. But it took him a little bit, I guess, to understand uh, what exactly happens when, you know, you can't just turn loose and expect to be home in an hour every time. Sometimes things just don't work out that way. Yeah, my my uh, parents were not coon hunters. I am I am a first generation coon hunter, and uh, I know the first the first few times, you know, the first year it was like you're not, you know. I, I know as a parent now, it's like yeah, you're going coon hunting, right? Sure, I bet you, you are. Yes, sir. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you guys are coon hunters. Houndsmen just sit out there and drink and and blah 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 and yeah so i lived that whole thing so it was that that was the common theme even back in the early 1980s jace so glad to see that not, every, not everything much. has changed <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah yeah so um what were we talking about we we're, we're having a conversation about i guess it was just your kids and your family and stuff like that so yeah, uh, I, I, my, you know, my wife, my hold down. Uh, <clears throat> I know if I was not with her, I'd probably have about ten dogs that I couldn't hunt. Uh, she kind of holds the, you know, knocks me. I don't really say want to knocks me down, but uh, she gives you wise puts counsel. A grip on me. Yeah, she said you do not need another dog. Right. Of course I do. <laughs> yeah, every houndsman needs another one, right? Yeah. Exactly. I, it sounds like our families or our wives are a lot, a lot alike. You know, she's never, she never, uh, she's put up a lot with a lot. I can say that, but I also, uh, know when enough is enough. And <laughs> when oh, I, yeah, when like I, I do need I, another dog and when I don't, <laughs> I went, you know, I've never had an older dog, you know, my entire hunting career, I've always started out with puppies. And uh, I said, man, I need, I need a real, at least a decent puppy trainer or something. Uh, so I went to a guy, his name was Jimmy Williams up there in Illinois. Um, and he had a, at the time, she was seven. And uh, me and a buddy of mine rode up there and got her. And at the time, I had a young dog about 10 months old. It was, you know, I was really wanting to push and like I was telling you on the phone, uh, after about a week letting her get used to me, I was I was in the woods four or five nights a week, you know, and I'm only off work Friday and Saturday. Yeah. You know, my wife was like, look, I don't mind you hunting, but uh, at least reserve, you know, a Friday or Saturday, you know, <laughs> you know, for us or whatever so we can see you. Right. And I sat back thought, and I said, well, you know, I'm not going to course i'm not gonna put up a fight with that you know it'd just be selfish and it just wouldn't be right and i said you know all right you know i'll reserve at least you know friday or saturday and i said you know if you want to come you know you're more than welcome to roll on with me uh, i know one time she came before and as soon as we turned uh the dog loose we've got a small population of bobcats around here yeah and I'm not going to lie, that joker hollered or howled or whatever, screeched or whatever, you know, you want to call their noise that they make. And she turned around and she's like, oh, no, 
I am not doing this. <laughs> and hauled hind into the truck. I get back up. The doors are locked. I said, the, the thing ain't going to open the door on you. Oh, <laughs> uh, we've done that same thing with coyotes. You know, I remember the first time my wife and I were, I think we were still dating. And uh, we were squirrel hunting on this hillside. And uh, I'm watching her. She's de- she, she carried her own rifle and has her own rifle. She's a heck of a shot. And uh, she was down the, down the hillside from me, and I looked down at her. And she was just frozen in place. And she looks up at me and points down there. And she says, a wolf. And I looked down there, and it was a coyote standing down in the creek. You know, next thing I, I looked at the coyote, saw it. The next thing I was looked up and, and she's already got a rifle leveled, getting ready to smoke this coyote. And, uh, it took <laughs> off before she got the shot off, but she, it was hilarious. But yeah, the coyotes light up in the middle of the night and, uh, it can make the people that don't have a lot of skin in the game pretty uneasy. So it can get them Man. headed to the truck pretty quick. Oh yeah. Uh, and I will say this, if you're hunting with somebody, you know, that always gives you that protective mindset because, you know, you have somebody standing right there next to you, I guess. But when yeah. you're hunting by yourself, which I do probably 95, 98% of the time, you know, I, I just go alone. Um, your mind can play some heavy tricks on you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you guys got any, had any Bigfoot sightings or anything there in North Carolina? Uh, I think there was some <laughs> documented, but I I believe in Bigfoot. You know, I might get the flack on that, but you know, I personally believe in Bigfoot. Oh, we have man. a bad coyote problem. Yeah, yeah. Coyotes are, are are horrible around this area. Right, right. Yep, we got them here too. At least they're not wolves, man. My buddies out west are just every time they turn a dog loose, they're, it's like playing Russian roulette. You know, are you gonna? And I've got two two plots out there right now um, that Larry Anderson is is hunting out there in Idaho. So at least they're not wolves. We have a no yeah, problem with uh, coyotes here during denning season of chewing young dogs up and stuff. But but a wolf will just—they're not going to chew them up. They're going to eat them. Now they'll annihilate them. Yep, they're going to eat them. They're going to smash them. They're going to eat them, and that's going to be it. So we won't get into that. We got into wolves pretty heavy last podcast. So yes, sir. Well, Chase, you got any final thoughts? Anything you want to you want to put out there? Uh, well, just on the thing that we talked about earlier about my whole life situation. Uh, you know, if you're ever, I guess, having any kind of problems or anything like that you know you don't have to necessarily be coon hunting or any type of hound hunting really just you know just find you something that you're really passionate about you know and just run with it wholeheartedly and you know through me i promise you it it is extremely saved my life in in a in a great way um and other than that christian i really think uh, thank you uh, tremendously of having me on. I would have never dreamed in a million years that I would, <laughs> you know, be on something like this, you know, because there's, you know, to me there's a whole lot of other people that are just well more knowledgeable and qualified than I am. Uh, so, you know, I'm just, you know, 
you know, I really do appreciate it. Well, you're the, you're exactly the type of guy that we, you know, the type of houndsman that we want to showcase on this podcast. Um, not everybody has got all the experience in the world. Nobody has all of the experience and we've got to come. I learn something every time I talk to somebody and, and, I've got to remind myself of that and not be the guy that's sitting back saying, well, back in my day we did, you know, (laughs) you know, stuff like that. And, and, um, because everybody's got something to offer this lifestyle that we lead. Yeah. Yeah. This lifestyle we lead is houndsmen and, and learn stuff from, I learned stuff from, from younger houndsmen all the time, you know, technology stuff, uh, how to how to stay current and relevant and and interact with with other people and and even their mindset teaches me how to communicate with them. If if we're going to be influencers for people that are that are either young and and trying to get into this or somebody that's in their mid thirties trying to get into this, we can't do it if we if we live in a cave and think that that we can influence them. We've got to be able to relate to those people. So that's, that's a lot of what I learned, but you, you mentioned something about, you know, the things that you went through, Chase, and I'm glad you shared that. And, and I had this thought, would you, would you consider hosting a uh, freedom hunters event? Well, I was going, I was, <clears throat> this is uh, another thing. You, you had given me some information on that and I had emailed him and, uh, of course, he replied back, uh-huh. and literally a couple days later, all this crap happened and shut down everything. I said, "Well, I'll just hold off." And you talking about the kung flu? Talking, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, I got you. And I'm done being politically uh, correct about the the COVIDs. Um, you know, I'm not going to get into it. It but, boils my blood. But. Yeah, let's talk about freedom hunters instead. Okay, and uh, yeah, like I said, I, I, I had emailed him, and uh, and I told him where I lived, and I coon hunted, and if, you know, if he knew or if somehow I could get in touch with somebody that would know, maybe somebody that would want to go or, you know, I guess just get knowledge about all that uh-huh. and how yeah. all that works. And, I, you know, I would be, you know, I would do that in a heartbeat. Great. Let's uh, we'll talk more about it off off the show and try to get that. But we need houndsmen. This is a good segue. Me to give a plug to Freedom Hunters right here. You know, Freedom Hunters needs us. We're getting ready to do more stuff with Freedom Hunters. Anthony and I talk almost on a weekly basis. He's the CEO for Freedom Hunters about how we can get more houndsmen involved and um, the. There is such an opportunity there for us as a hound hunting community to make an impact for our our American heroes, our warriors, and and Chase, you've got so much to offer this guy. But every one of us does. Don't think that that you don't. If you're listening, don't think that you don't have something to offer. The adventure. Getting these these warriors out there is all valuable. You and and just providing the opportunity. And um, 
I can't stress that enough. And and the other thing is, man, can you can you think of any more patriotic group than our military veterans, Chase? No, I sure cannot. Do they? Because I don't think there is none. Do those do those people vote? Do oh vet, yeah, veterans are. I would like to see what the percentage of if you take our veterans and then you take a percentage of them that that are faithful voters man i i bet it's got to be it's got to be through the roof you know high high percentages so we take them out there we expose them to what hound hunting really is and then they take that message back or they become involved in hound sports hound you know the houndsman lifestyle and they take that message back and now they are the guys that are going to contact senators legislators and and they're going to become they're they're war they're warriors. They are going to fight the good fight. So we need to be drawing them in and giving them that opportunity. And and it's good for us as houndsmen. And it's just the right thing to do. I agree a hundred percent. Yep. Yep. What else you got, Chase? Anything before we sign this off? Uh, well, Chris, I think it I think it about wraps it up. I've, we've covered quite a lot of ground. Uh, Man, you've—I have gained a whole lot of knowledge just on this one podcast, uh, just doing you know, it to myself. So I have about ran out of questions. Well, I got one more for you before we sign off. All right. What is one piece of advice that you've gotten from another houndsman that has been beneficial to you? Something that sticks out in your mind. Something that somebody told you. Somebody once told me, um, listen twice as much as you talk. And that's that's kind of just uh, stuck out to me because, uh, you know, if you get in a group of people, you know, I guess everybody's just sitting there talking so and not listening um but if you just sit back and and listen and gather you know what they're saying um before you speak because you know some people speak too quick and um i guess make them sound like idiots or whatever but um i don't know that's just kind of really stuck out to me yeah it goes right there another goes right there along with that goes right along with what Abraham Lincoln said about, um, you know, it's better to be remain silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. That is, yeah, that, <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> what but, uh, you know, I try to, that, that's about it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, Chase, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day today to, to be with us on the Houndsman XP podcast. And, uh, open your heart and uh, share your passion with our listeners and, and encourage. There was a lot of good stuff in your message. I, I, I can't stress it enough. You know, encouraging, uh, for, for houndsmen across the United States, you know, as a, as a veteran, as a, as a Marine, uh, great message for, for our listeners, for sure. I think our audience is going to really enjoy hearing from you. And they should. I, I truly hope so. <laughs> yeah, I think they will. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. So, 
Chase, if you haven't got anything else, I'll close it out and just tell you that you follow your hounds, I'll follow mine.